Some of you know that I've written a short book built around Hebrews 11, and I opened chapter 9 with this line from a song written by an American Christian band named Casting Crowns. I think probably most of you would know that name. The name of the song is To Know You. It's written to Jesus, okay? And the line is this. To know you, again, he's writing to Jesus. To know you is to ache for more than the ordinary. To know you is to look beyond the temporary. <laughs> and when I, yeah, when I heard that line, I said, that's in the book. That's got to go in the book. Especially chapter 9, because chapter 9 is, is kind of a testimony uh, for, for Karen and I on, on how God turned our lives upside down back in the mid to late 90s and all that He's done in our life. I'm going to say it to you again. To know Christ is to ache for more than the ordinary. To know Christ is to look beyond the temporary. You understand, right? If you know Him, if you're born again, you understand. The ordinary and the temporary, it's just too small. <laughs> it's too small. We can't live there anymore. We've met our Creator. We've met our Redeemer. We can't live like the rest of the world. We can't. Sometimes we try, but we realize we can't. We can't live like that. It's simply too small for us. We can't live like that. We can't, we can't do the ordinary. We can't just live for... The temporary. It reminded me of a scene. Some of you have probably heard me relate this before. Um, from F Franco Zeffirelli's movie, um, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this movie is like a thousand years old. I think it was made in the 70s. But it's the best Jesus movie I've ever seen. I usually can't stand to watch Jesus movies because they're so far off. And, of course, it's impossible anyway, right? You, how are you going to capture God incarnate on film? I mean, it's impossible, but... I like Zeffirelli's effort. And, uh, but he has a scene in there where Peter and, uh, and Matthew, it's their first night with Jesus. They just left everything. They're going with Jesus. It's their first night as disciples. And they're bedding down, right? Under the stars. And Peter says, Well, I told my wife I'll, I'll be back in the spring. Besides, you know, the fishing's terrible, so why shouldn't I go away for a while? And Matthew says, Don't lie to her. And Peter says, what do you mean lie to her? Of course I'm going back. He says, you'll never go back. He says, everything's changed. And we're the first to know. God has come and we're the first to know. You'll never go back. You'll never fish again for a living. You'll never get drunk again. You'll never live in Capernaum again. Everything's changed. Amen? I love that scene. Because if you've met Christ, you realize it's true. Everything has changed. Nothing will ever be the same again. I love how Matthew says that. For the whole world! <laughs> this must be on. Can you turn me down a little bit, Josh? I think I'm loud enough as it is. The whole world will be changed. Matthew's right. I love how Randy Alcorn talks about this American author. He says, if we listen to Jesus, we'll never be the same. 
Amen? And then he says this, and I love this. He says, nor will we ever want to be. If we listen to Jesus, we'll never be the same, nor will we ever want to be. I love that line. So, yeah, to know Christ is to ache for more than the ordinary. To know Christ is to look beyond the temporary. It reminds me of that famous 19th century English preacher named Charles Spurgeon. I've shared this with you before. Real Christians are spoiled for this world, meaning simply it's the cosmos. We were talking with the young adults Thursday evening. If you could somehow pour the whole cosmos into your soul, it wouldn't move the needle. It's not enough. We must have God. God wired humanity in such a way that we must have Him. And when we try to settle for something less than Him, we always crash and burn. Always. We, the human heart, must have Christ. And we know that we are, you know, we are aliens. We are exiles. We are pilgrims. We're passing through. We're not here to stay. We're here to go. We're no longer earthbound. We are heaven bound. We've met the living God and nothing will ever be the same. It's that stuff. You know what I'm talking about. It keeps bubbling up in your regenerate heart. <laughs> this, this affection for Christ. This desire to, to, to know Him in a, on a deeper level and to serve Him to a greater degree. It's always perpetually bubbling up in our, in our souls, our regenerate souls. It's been engrafted and encoded into our regenerate DNA, right? It's just who we are now. We're in love with Him. and We are His doulos guys, as we've been talking about. What does doulos mean? Anybody remember? We are His slaves. We are His bond slaves. This is not some burden we bear. We give ourselves to this God. We eagerly give ourselves to this God even as He gave Himself to us. So we are His... <laughs> His slaves. So you might be saying, well, Jim, this is all well and good, but what's it got to do with Jude? Okay, you know, we changed our format. Josh likes to do the worship order uh, a little differently, and that's, that's good. But I did forget to have someone read the text. So I, I think uh, probably what we'll do is uh, we're going to be in Jude. You guys know where Jude is, right? It's uh, the next to last book. Go to Revelation, turn left, and you will be in the book of Jude. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just read it as we preach through it, okay? We, instead of just reading it all together at one time. So, Bill, no pressure. You're, the pressure's off. Pressure's off tonight. Jesus came, and Matthew's right. Everything changed. Everything has changed. The cosmos and this earth, this is... We are not in a steady state. This is not a steady state proposition. Jesus came and everything changed. Guess what? Jesus is coming again and everything's going to change again. This part of what's in the text tonight, we're going to see that. But before we get there, I just want to, in an effort to support what we hear Jude say, if you have a Bible or an electronic device, I'd love for you to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3 just real quick. 2 Peter chapter 3. We saw this last year in our sermon series on 
on 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to remind you what God said to us there in 2 Peter 3.10. God says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Jesus Christ is coming back, and everything will change. He's bringing a new heaven and a new earth with Him. So right after uh, that passage there in 2 Peter 3, do you remember the question that the Holy Spirit asks in the very next verse? Let me read it to you. 2 Peter 3, 11-14. The Holy Spirit says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace and spotless and blameless. Jesus Christ came and everything changed. Jesus Christ is coming again and everything will change again and this time forever. This time forever. God asks you and me in light of Christ's second coming, 2 Peter 3.11, what sort of people ought you to be? In light of the fact that He came, in light of the fact He's coming back soon, as the Revelation tells us, what sort of people ought you to be? How does He say it? In holy conduct and godliness. And then He goes on. 2 Peter 3.14, God says, Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. And then God continues His exhortation, 2 Peter 3.17 and 18, then we'll move on. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, this is really about what Jude's talking about tonight. You know all this. You're supposed to know this. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. This is what we've been talking about. Pseudo-clergy, pseudo-denominations, pseudo-Christianity. That's what we've been talking about for the last three or four uh, weeks or so. He said, don't be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which brings us back full circle to the book of Jude. Jude has been saying, do not fall for these con artists. You're supposed to know the truth. And when you hear a lie, you're supposed to recognize it. You're supposed to recognize the false teacher. You're supposed to recognize the pseudo-denomination. You're supposed to know this stuff. This is what uh, you know, we've been talking about really for the last three or four or five weeks. Guard your steadfastness, which simply means guard your commitment and your persistence and your devotion to Christ and consequently to the body of Christ. You know, I've told you many times, I meet internationals and they treat the church like it's expendable. They treat the church like it's, 
you know, well, I'll come if I have time. I'll come if it doesn't crowd my schedule. I'll come if I'm not traveling too much. I'll come if it fits my schedule. I mean, I hear this a lot. And I understand that some of you are here in Europe for the first time, and I understand that you travel sometimes. I get that. I get that. But beloved, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. This God who died for us. This God who was incarnate for us. This God who kept the law for us. This God who was scourged for us. This God who was crucified for us. This God who was buried for us. Verses 14 to 16. Jude. I'm in Jude now. Verses 14 and 16. 14 through 16. Book of Jude. If somebody wants to turn that heat off, that's okay with me. Uh, Jude 14. Is that okay, Joanna? Are you cold? She's still cold. Okay, it's all right. Jude 14. And about these, who are these? These are the false teachers. And about these false teachers, also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His own holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These are the grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. You guys remember Enoch, Genesis chapter 5. He was not because God took him. You remember? And I think it's interesting that uh, seven generations from Adam, seven generations from Adam, you have the first prophecy, right, of the second coming judgment of Jesus. We're only seven generations from the garden, and God gives the prophecy. Now, we don't have this prophecy in the Old Testament. It doesn't come to us through the Old Testament, but it's passed down through the oral and written tradition of the nation of Israel. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude records this prophecy for us. And of course, this prophecy is uh, mentioned numerous times and repeated numerous times in the New Testament. Let me just give you one example. The Apostle Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9. through Paul says, And the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. In verse 15, did you notice? It's awful hard to miss. Jesus will judge the ungodly. It's mentioned four times. Four times there in one verse. I looked this Greek word, Greek word up, translated ungodly. Here's, here's the heart of the word. It means to be destitute of reverential awe toward God. To be destitute of reverential awe toward God. Don't you see it every single day out in the world? 
Don't you hear it in the media? Don't you hear it in the music? Don't you see it on the mo- in the movies? Destitute of the reverential awe toward God. It's what Paul was talking about in Romans 1. He said, mankind, unregenerate man, man, natural man, does not honor God as God, nor does he give thanks to God. He's a thankless creature. Natural man. Oh, he may sometimes tip his hat because it seems you know, socially acceptable or culturally required, but are you truly thankful for everything God has poured out on you? Because all that you are and all that you have is from God. You know, we could just never be thankful enough. That's one thing eternity will be about. (laughs) Not only praising this God, but thanking this God. Romans 3.18 talks a little further about it. It says, he talks about natural man. He says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. There is no reverential awe in the eyes of natural man. And even in much of the visible, the, 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 the visible church, there's very little reverential awe of this great God, I am God, consuming fire God, who died for us. This consuming fire God who's in a manger. <laughs> Come on. You either have to worship or you have to leave. Amen? It's either ridiculous or it's the most awesome thing that you have ever heard. I am God is in a manger. The God who spoke me into existence is in a manger. And He's there because He loves me. Did you notice that these guys are grumblers and they're finding fault? The primary reference here in verse 16 is that is that these guys are grumbling against God. They find fault with God. They live their lives as if it's really all about me. You know, I'm just living independently of God. But if something goes wrong, I'll give Him the back of my hand. I'll call Him to account. I'll critique God. I'll blame God. If everything doesn't go just the way I want it to, That's what we're talking about. Those who find fault with God. Those who critique God. Fault finders and grumblers. People who have no reverential awe toward this awesome, consuming fire, returning, reigning God. Have you ever seen an angry lamb? Anybody ever seen, have you ever been around sheep? Have you ever seen an angry lamb? If you've read Revelation, you have. Let me just read an excerpt to you from Revelation 6, 14-17. And this is in reference to the prophecy of Enoch, the Lord will come back with His angels. Verse 14 of Jude. Revelation 6, 14-17. The sky was split apart like a scroll and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Have you ever seen an angry lamb? Yes. If you read the book of Revelation, Jesus comes back in great wrath 
And men would just rather have the mountains fall on them than rather face this lamb. Let me read you one more excerpt from Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven open, John says, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on, on him which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jeremiah says this in an unforgettable way. Jeremiah 25.31 The Lord has a controversy with the nations. And He will enter into judgment with all flesh. Beloved, Jesus is coming back and everything's going to change again. <laughs> Everything is going to change forever. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. We've been talking... I mean, there's a lot I could say here, but we've been talking about this for the last couple, three or four weeks, so I won't belabor the point. Let's move on to verses 17 to 19. I'm back in Jude. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of spirit. The Holy Spirit calls us to remember the words of the apostles. Virtually every New Testament book, as I've been saying to you, warned about the apostasy. The apostasy's coming. The apostasy's coming. The false teachers are coming. Right? We've been talking a lot about that. And Satan is no sluggard. Because the, the apostasy came immediately. Revelation is written 25 years after Jude penned his letter. And did you notice, he wrote to seven churches and five of them have already apostatized underscored by the church of Laodicea. And Jesus said, You are a lukewarm church. I'll vomit you out of My mouth. Five of the seven have already begun to apostatize. Satan is no sluggard. The apostasy came quick. The point here is that the apostasy, the apostasy that the apostles warned about, it came quickly. And of course, it is now epidemic in these last days in what is called the visible church. If you take Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and the various strands of heretical Protestantism, most of what the world calls Christianity is apostate. I've said this to you many times, but it's just true. If you just listen to what they say, if you just read what they write, if you just watch what they do, what they, how they worship, how they talk about salvation, how they talk about Christ, it's biblically unrecognizable. 
So you have to decide. Is God's Word the final authority or not? Because if God's Word is the final authority, again, the vast majority of Christendom, as the world sees it, the visible church is apostate. We've been talking a lot about that. You know, they just make stuff up. You ask them, where's that in the Bible? Well, it's not in the Bible. It was decided at the council. You know, it was decided at the assembly. It was pontificated from uh, the throne in Rome. It, it's, it's, some, it's this, that, or the other thing, but you can't find it in the Bible. They're always adding something or taking something away. This is a pseudo church. A, a church that does this is a pseudo church. I know they use biblical terms. I know they claim the, 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 the name of Christ. But what I'm saying to you, as I've said to you throughout this series, their Christ is not the biblical Christ. Their Christ is some figment of their imagination. Their Christ is a caricature. Their Christ is a cartoon God. Their Christ does not exist. He's a figment of the imagination of Satan. It's the illusions and pleasantries that the Old Testament Jews wanted. Isaiah chapter 30. It's the ear tickles and myths of the New Testament visible church that we've talked a lot about. 2 Timothy 4. So Jude is saying to us, you should not be surprised. You know, as I've shared with you in this series, uh, a lot of people are they're a little offended sometimes the way I speak about pseudo-churches. And they say, well, you're just being too hard, Jim. You, 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 you know, you're not supposed to judge. We should just get along. We should just have unity. We should be ecumenical. I don't have a problem with, with some of that. But listen, once they decide that they're going to depart from this, once they disparage the name of Christ, once they disparage the Gospel, once, once it's another Gospel, once, it's a, you know, once it becomes a Gospel of works, I'm sorry, I'll do my best to love and witness to them, but I cannot worship with them. I cannot fellowship with them. The point in Jude, the apostasy came. You're supposed to know it's coming. You're supposed to know it's here. You're supposed to be able to identify it. This is really the point. One of the major points of the book of Jude. Just a couple of quick examples from some of the apostles because he references what the apostles had written. Let me just give it to you here quick. Paul says, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, and hypocritical liars. That's 1 Timothy 4.2. Peter said, these uh, pseudo-clergy, they will introduce destructive heresies and the truth will be maligned and they will exploit with false words. That's 2 Peter 2.1. John says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 John 4.1 The apostles said the apostasy would come. It has come. It is not a trickle. It is a tsunami. We're supposed to know this, beloved. We're supposed to know this. And we're supposed to love these folks that are caught up in these false systems and we're supposed to be able to speak truth to them in love. Right? Share the real Gospel with them. Gospel of salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. 
So verses 18 and 19, the Holy Spirit says these mockers, and they're worldly-minded, they're devoid of the Spirit, they follow their own lust, they, they, they cause division. These are the pseudo-clergy, the pseudo-churches that make up much of the visible church. Verses 20 and 21, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So here's the deal. Here's, he's writing to, you know, he's speaking directly to us now. He's saying, now here's how you, here's how you navigate an apostate church. Here how, here's how you navigate the last days. When much of the church is apostate, here's how you do it. He's going to give us three or four or five things that we can do. The first one we've already talked about. Be aware that the apostles warned that this would happen. We're not supposed to be shocked that it happened. We're not supposed to be naive about the fact that it's happened. It has happened. They told us it would happen. It has happened. You're supposed to know this. You're not supposed to be naive just because some priest or preacher or pope or patriarch says something. You don't just take it at face value. Only if it agrees with the Word of God. Beloved, we're supposed to know these things. We're not supposed to be naive about the visible church. We're not supposed to be surprised when pseudo-clergy edit, twist, spin, ignore, reinterpret, dilute, distort, add to, or take away from, or simply ignore God's revelation about Himself and His Word. We're not surprised when pseudo-churches create caricatures of Jesus. A user-friendly, easy-to-manipulate, effeminate, lucky-charm cartoon God. Verse 20, the second thing we can do to navigate this uh, sea of apostasy, this counterfeit Christianity, is build ourselves up on the most holy faith. What do you think that means? I know you know what that means. Build your faith. How do you build your faith? Well, you're a student of the Word of God. You're in the Word of God. You eat the Word of God, right? You're a Berean. You're, you're pouring over the Scriptures to find out if these things are true. We've talked a lot about this, so I won't belabor that point except to say God expects you to know the Word. This is the greatest physical gift you have ever received. Do you, do you handle it that way? Do you think about it that way? Do you treasure it that way? This is the greatest physical gift you've ever been given. It is a direct, it is a letter from God. Do you treasure the Word of God? Are you hiding it in your heart? Are you learning His words? Are you living by His words? Are you honoring Him in the way that He has called us to honor Him? And the only way you can know that is through the Scriptures? Build yourself up. Build up your most holy faith. I was reading one guy and he says, you know, we're not only supposed to know the Word, we are to wield the Word. Don't you love that? Are you wielding the Word? You say, well, Jim, I don't know what that means exactly. What does it mean to wield the Word? Let me tell you. It means to handle or use effectively with sustained effort for lasting effect. Don't you love that? Is that how you use the Word? With your friends and colleagues, your family members, your neighbors? Those in the, in, the, in, the, in the church? 
Are you wielding the word? Do you handle and use effectively with sustained effort for lasting effect? Or, you know, that's what real disciples do. We know the word, we wield it. So, if you don't hear me say anything else, go out there and wield it this week. Wield the word. That's what disciples do. That's what doulos guys do. We wield the word. We wield it. I love that. Verse 20. Thirdly, praying in the Holy Spirit. This doesn't have anything to do with prayer language or it's not about tongues. It's simply praying in a way that is yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, praying in a way that the Spirit of God is the moving and guiding power in our prayer. It's, it kind of dovetails off the, uh, the one we said earlier. It's praying in a Bible-saturated way. Amen? You're praying in, in an intelligent way. Praying off the Scripture. The will of God. That's what it means. To pray in the Holy Spirit. Praying the will of God. And if you're not quite sure, we'll just do what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, Your will be done. Not my will. Your will. Your will be done, God. You're the great sovereign king who knows everything, the beginning from the end. Your will. And what Christian would, what thinking Christian would not want that? <laughs> I mean, come on. You know, I've met some Christians and, and you know, they're praying for something. Bam, I want this, I want this, I want this. Jim, I'm not getting this. I want this, I want this. I said, have you ever thought that God may be saying no? And is it okay if he says no? Do you think maybe he knows better? I don't know. What do you think? Do you think He knows better? Do you think it's better for you if He says no? Can you trust God with the no? Of course we can, beloved. That's, what it, that's part of what it means to be praying in the Spirit. Verse 21, Fourthly, keep yourselves in the love of God. This is a little bit cryptic, but, it, but you know, it's close to being a student of the Word. It, it flows out of being a student of the Word. As we talked about, it, it flows out of praying in the Spirit of God. It means that we stay close to God and in His will. Let me just give you one, one uh, Scripture reference for support of that. I think John 15, 9 and 10 illustrate this. Jesus says, Just as the Father loved Me, I have loved you. Abide in My love. If you keep My commandments, you abide in My love. This is really about obedience. That's what this is about. It's about obedience. I think that's what's being communicated here, it's part of any counseling I do. The, the ultimate question that I want to ask that will ultimately come up is, are you obeying God in this situation? Whatever your situation is, are you obeying God in it? That's it. Because if you're not, you're not going to find peace. You're not going to get to a, a, a workable solution. Are you obeying God in this situation that you've come to me for counseling about? Are you obeying God? Beloved, I think that's part of what's being communicated here. I really do. I really think that's what's being communicated. It's the John 14, 21 thing. We obey God because He's a dictator. He's a, he's a hard dictator. That's why we obey God, right? Why do we obey God, John 14, 21? Because He comes to us. He gives Himself to us. As we obey, we get more of God. John 14, 21, we get the disclosure. The disclosure of God. Fifthly, verse 21, we wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternity. This is just a, a really pretty way to say we're looking for His coming. Right? We're looking for His coming. And that changes the way we think about everything. It changes the way we live. 
It changes the way I deal with my wife or my husband or how I raise my kids or how I treat my boss or my subordinates or how I, you know, cook the, the meal for my husband. And she does it so well. She made me a pumpkin pie today. Mama mia, I can't wait. I can't wait. Whatever it is, whatever it is, we do the Matthew 25, 23 thing. We want, our whole life is pointed at the well done. Amen? Well done. That's, that's what our whole life is pointed at. It's not pointed at big money, big career, you know, perfect family, uh, great cars, great clothes, a lake house, uh, a, a lake house or five houses. Or it, 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 it's not. It's, we can't. We can't live that small. That's too ordinary. That's too temporary. Amen. We can't live like that. We can't live for this stuff. We're pointing at the well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your father. I love that. John calls this the purifying hope, 1 John 3, 3. Peter calls it the living hope, 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 22 and 23, we'll close it up. And have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So lastly here, how do we navigate the apostasy in the face of this avalanche of false teaching and pseudo-Christianity? Jesus says, do what I've called you to do. What do you see there in the last two verses that we're going to cover tonight? What do you see there? What are we called to do? What is the Great Commission? Someone tell me. What is the Great Commission? We what? We make disciples. What do we... How do we teach these guys? What do we teach these guys? Well, just go to church and everything will be cool. No, that's not what we teach them. We teach them the Word of God. Amen? We, we make disciples. And Jesus said, how did, how did Jesus say it? He says, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded. It, beloved, it's always about disciples. It's not about church members. It's good to be a member of a church. It's not about church going. It's good to go to church. But the ultimate question for you and the ultimate question for me, am I a doulos guy? Am I really his bond servant? That's really ultimately always the question. Am I a disciple? Do I live like a disciple? Do I speak like a disciple? Do I act like a disciple? As I often say to you, can the third party, disinterested third party, watch my, watch my life and realize, yeah, that guy, he loves Christ. He loves Christ. So we are equal opportunity uh, evangelists. Right here in verse 22, talks about those who have doubts. We come alongside those in the, in the body of Christ who have doubts. We, we help them. We edify them. We pray with them. Uh, verse 23, we, we witness to those clearly on their way to hell. We snatch them from the fires of hell, so to speak. Some vivid imagery here. And we even share with apostates who have grossly polluted their professions of faith. Verse 23, we are equal opportunity evangelists. We share the truth. We just lovingly sow the seed, right? We know we can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. But God's Word will save. God's Word will save. You just sow the good seed. So in summary, quickly, 
We have everything we need to navigate this ocean of apostasy in these last days. First, we are not surprised or naive about it. God told us it would happen. Verse 17. Secondly, we, we're always building up our faith by being in the Word of God. Verse 20. Third, uh, thirdly, we, uh, yielded, uh, we're yielded to the will of God in our prayers and in our lives. Verse 20. Uh, fourthly, we are doulos guys. We love Christ. We're expending energy to obey Him. Verse 21. Fifth, we genuinely and anxiously look for His coming. Verse 21. And lastly, we are doing what our Creator, Redeemer God has told us to do. Verse 22 and 23. We are telling. We are telling the Gospel. We are telling the Gospel. And at the end of the day, you know how it is. It's hard not to tell the Gospel, right? I mean, if you believe it, it's like it bubbles up. It, doesn't it bubble up in, in your normal conversation? Um, I'm always amazed. Karen and I, it's like we're talking about the Lord, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe 85% of the time? I don't, I don't know. It's just, isn't He your most favorite topic? Can you ever exhaust the beauty of Christ? Yeah. So Matthew was right in what he said to Peter that first night as a disciple in that Zeffirelli movie entitled Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus has come and everything has changed. And Jude tells us tonight that Jesus is coming again and everything's going to change again. And it will change forever. Casting crowns, I think, is right on the money to know Jesus is to ache for more than the ordinary. To know Jesus is to look beyond the temporary. We can't live small anymore. We can't. If we believe this, we can't. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that I could believe this and be satisfied with this world. It's unthinkable that I could really believe this and be more in love with something on this planet than I could be in love with Jesus. It's unthinkable. It's unfathomable that that could even be a possibility. We can't live that small. We can't live for the ordinary and the temporary. Jesus has come for us, beloved. He has saved us through His finished work on the cross, Jesus has come for us. Oh, guess what? He's coming back. And I don't know if He's going to... I don't know. He could come back right now. Uh, I don't, we don't know when He's coming back. But He's coming back. Praise God. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table tonight.